one of the first times we find ourselves in church at Christmas. For others of us, it might be uh, the hundredth or thousandth or maybe not millionth, but many times you've been in churches for the Christmas season. So you're familiar with some of the traditions, like maybe the lighting of the Advent wreath, or maybe some of the songs we sing, or at least you've been hearing them on the radio since after Halloween, so it's okay. But Christmas time can sometimes be so familiar to us that we can lose sight of what it's really all about. And sometimes, as a pastor, this is the 10th Christmas I've been at Bromley, and one of the things that happens at Christmas for pastors, maybe not all pastors, at least for me, was you're like, hey, how do I do something creative? Because everybody's heard this story before, and you usually don't because, well, it's the story everybody wants to hear and needs to hear. So this Christmas, we're not being all that creative. We're going to be talking about who Jesus is and why Christmas matters. And the way we're going to be doing that is by looking at the four titles that the prophet Isaiah uses and what they mean in the person of Jesus. In Isaiah's time, he was dealing with a few different things that were going on. But one of the significant things that was going on for Isaiah in the Old Testament, he's a prophet, is that the Assyrian army was basically threatening the kingdom of the the Hebrews, of the Israelites, of the kingdom of Judah. And as there's this threat that's going on, the people decide, okay, well, we're being threatened by this large superpower. What we'll do is we'll just do what they do. So they like us. And so they started to adopt certain practices and customs that the people had and kind of diluted their beliefs quite a bit. And this happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And as it's happening in this story, the people kind of assimilate themselves to this Assyrian regime, and they lose sight of God. And the passage I read earlier, talking about the people been walking in a darkness, was that they started to live a life that looked just like the corrupt culture that was around them at the time. So they have these people who ignore God, and they're looking just like them, and they too are starting to ignore God. But in Isaiah, what the hope of it is, is that in the midst of the fears of what could come, in the midst of kind of losing themselves and their identity, is that there's still a light at the end. There's still hope of what could be. In Isaiah chapter 9, the passage we're kind of going to be focusing on is in verse 6. Where we read this, that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so as Isaiah is prophesying this, as he's sharing it with the people who have kind of abandoned God and are experiencing their suffering and sorrow and pain, He's saying there will come a point where this happens, where God brings someone into it, into our story, to rescue. And these are the titles that they're given. For the people, as we sang in the songs earlier of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, for the people of Isaiah's time, they were waiting for this. For us, this happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus came into the world, and the Messiah stepped into history, and history changed. But it doesn't mean that everything is perfect. It doesn't mean everything is good. Sometimes we still feel like we're in a darkness. But the the title that we're going to focus on for this morning is Wonderful Counselor. And when Jesus is called a Wonderful Counselor, what does that mean? What could it mean? 
For some of us, we might we see those words, wonderful, and counselor, we think, well, wonderful, that means like they're great. Counselor, it's like that person I see once a month that tells me what's wrong with me, or actually doesn't tell me what's wrong with me, gets me to say what's wrong with me, and then they somehow that helps me. But that's not exactly the term or the terminology that gets used here. The word wonderful that gets used is a fairly unique word in the Hebrew. Uh, the close, like the word that gets used as wonderful only gets used to talk about God. So it's only used about 80 times in the Old Testament, and it's only to talk about God. And the word that gets used is the closest word in Hebrew to supernatural. So when that word wonderful, when we think wonderful, maybe we think, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. For them, they're thinking supernatural. And the word counselor isn't like that person you may see once in a while who's trying to help you through stuff, but it's more about the idea of a kingly counsel or a judge, someone who gives wisdom and speaks into moments. So for those people hearing it the first time, and for us, the title that gets given to the Messiah is he's a wonderful counselor, that this person will be able to supernaturally speak wisdom and direction into life. That's what wonderful counselor means. And it's a theme that comes up in the life of Jesus because that's who Jesus is. My hope in this series, more than anything, and maybe it's just my hope of Christmas time, is that you fall in love with the baby we celebrate at Christmas. But don't ignore that he didn't stay a baby because he's the man who, who is God, who died on the cross for us. And so when he is called Wonderful Counselor, it's something that stretches throughout his life. In fact, it's the idea of being the Wonderful Counselor or the idea of wisdom being embodied in Jesus comes up a few times throughout Scripture. We don't have much about Jesus' early life. We have two stories that tell of his birth, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And Luke has a little bit of like his, you know, younger preteen age group age kind of stuff. And not much, though. We don't have much of Jesus' life before he's 30. But in Luke's gospel, in the story that he tells, he says something twice in chapter 2. First time he says this, he says uh, in verse, chapter 2, verse 40, The child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And then later on in verse 52, he says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. So the story of Jesus is that while he is born, and that's what we usually celebrate at Christmas, he doesn't stay just that baby. As he grows, he grows in good standing with people because he grows in wisdom. And wisdom is that, why, is that wonderful counselor piece of Jesus. And it comes up later on in his life as well. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us in verse, what verse is it? Thir- chapter 13, verse 54. It says, as the people who are speaking about him said, where did this man get his wisdom and miraculous powers? Right? So it's something that people are noticing about him, that Jesus is this wonderful counselor. And so it should be asking ourselves, well, what does that mean that Jesus is a wonderful counselor? If we just focus on 
you know, the birth narrative of Jesus, which is an important story, and it's good to celebrate that at Christmas, we'll miss out on this key piece of who God in the flesh is for us. He's the one who offers us wise counsel, direction to life. And it's something that people in his day sought out from him. Over and over again, they would seek him out to get direction and wisdom into how to apply their life in following God. But sometimes we might forget to do that ourselves. If we keep Jesus as that baby we celebrate, we might not see him as the one who is a wonderful counselor. In John's gospel, he tells one of the most important stories, I think, of demonstrating Jesus' wisdom and wise counsel for us. And it's a story that can be ignored, and there's lots of questions around it. But the story is one that probably many of us have some familiarity with. In John chapter 8, the author tells a story of a woman who is caught in adultery. But he starts it this way. It says in 8 verse 2, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So Jesus is someone who enters into... So the temple in their time was a place of teaching. And you had to be kind of let in to teach. Not just anybody taught. If someone was not a right teacher or a good teacher, they would not be allowed in that space. But at this point in the story, people are comfortable with Jesus being in this space and teaching, and people seek him out in that context. And he's there, he's teaching them. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So while people are seeking Jesus out, are appreciating his wonderful counselor attribute, those who are the religious teachers, those who are the people who kind of govern that teaching space are trying to trap him because they're tired of what he's teaching. As the people grow in fondness of Jesus, as they see the wisdom in his counsel, the other people see how it goes against what they might be teaching. So in this scenario, it says where Jesus is put in a trap. It says, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When, he kept, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. So in this moment, Jesus is confronted by religious leaders who are trying to trap him. And they bring a woman who, under their regulations, should have been killed. And Jesus turns the table. He gives wise counsel in this moment. Or he says, let's look at ourselves first. Let's stop accusing, bringing accusations. Let's self-reflect. Who's better than her? The answer is no one. They put down their stones. But he says to her, stop 
doing what you know you shouldn't be doing. And the verse that follows it um, is so important, even though it's not part of the story. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is that light that speaks into the darkness that we wait for, that we hope for. Is that wonderful counselor that we long to speak into that darkness to give direction through it. In the context of the story that I just read, he speaks both to the woman who is caught doing something that she shouldn't be doing, caught doing something contrary to God's design for her, and says, don't keep doing it. But he's also challenging those who are bringing that up as the real issue, saying, look in your own heart. Do you really have a right to do this? That's a wonderful counselor. Jesus presents a way forward into a difficult situation. As, he's, as the other people are trying to trap him, he presents a way forward that they didn't think would come out of that conversation. They can't trap him because he's too good for them. He knows a better way. He knows a better way than going, okay, this is right, this is wrong, but actually says, how do we move forward into a situation that's difficult? The people were in a great darkness, but God brings hope in light. Jesus says he is the light of the world. As that light enters into the world, it provides us an opportunity to know him as a supernatural counsel. The one who can give us direction and wisdom to life in the moments where we think that maybe all hope is lost or we think that there's no way out of this situation, he can speak into our lives with a direction that's clearer than we understand, but we need to follow it. We don't know about this woman, really. Like, There's a lot of missed history on this story. We don't know what happens to her. There's some tradition about her, but we really don't know her at all. We don't know if she actually said, okay, I'm not going to live a life that I was living before. We do know that the religious leaders kind of buckled down and said, okay, we really got to get rid of this guy now, and led to his death. But what we really need to go is, well, who are we in the mix of the context of the story? We are like the crowd that hears this story and goes, okay, what is the wonderful counsel for me? If Jesus is a wonderful counselor, what does that mean in my life? It's one thing to believe that, well, he's the baby who was born that we celebrate. It's another thing to believe that, well, he's the one who died for my sins and rose again, which is true. Both are true. But what about that in-between of my life? What does every day look like if I believe Jesus is those two and so much more? Well, he's wonderful counselor. Meaning he has direction and guidance for your life, just like my life, just like anybody's life that if we listen to it, can make a difference. And so we need to read the scriptures. We need to see what is said in those scriptures. And we need to say, okay, I've heard, I listen. But then we also have to trust what is written. Trust that Jesus actually wants something better than maybe what we know. Likely you want something better for your life. Likely you want to feel uh, joy. I think all of us do. We don't want to feel sorrow or sadness. We want joy in our lives. Likely we want something good for ourselves. 
Maybe there are moments where we feel overwhelmed and it's hard to see that. But I hope deep down you know you deserve joy as well. You are someone who's made in the image of God. You are a wonderful masterpiece. And you deserve more for your life than to be miserable. But you also have to trust that Jesus wants something even better than you can imagine. This is something one of my mentors has challenged me on over and over again in my life. Um, One of my mentors, Taylor, he would often say, Rob, you need to reframe what you're thinking and trust that Jesus cares even more. So when I share my concerns with him, and sometimes it's really frustrating because he always has a good answer and it drives me nuts. But as I share, and usually it's something like, you know, I'm worried about my kids. I want my kids to know and love Jesus someday. And he says, Rob, you need to reframe that because Jesus loves your kids even more. And you need to trust that. And it's easy to just hear it. It's easy to just say it, but you have to trust it. So when I read the scriptures, when I read the stories of Jesus, when I see what Jesus has said, when I listen to it, I need to trust it to be true, to trust it to be better than what I could do. And then I have to follow. I have to do it. Have you ever given someone really great advice and then they don't follow it and you're like, why didn't you just listen to me? I know you've never done that yourself. Nobody who's given you good advice, you always follow it, I know. But it means nothing to be given good advice or to be told what you're supposed to do if you don't follow through with it. It's like with your kids when you say, don't touch the hot oven because you'll burn yourself. And then they're like, eh, I don't trust that. Let's see. And they do. You're like, well, you should have followed what I told you. We need to listen. We need to understand what Jesus has said, how God is instructing us to be. We need to trust, even when it's hard, that there's something more for us than what we could imagine. And then we need to follow through. If Jesus is the wonderful counselor that he is, and I know him to be, we need to believe it to be true. We need to listen to him, trust him, and follow him. When we need hope in the darkness, we need to have someone to follow through in it. And that someone to follow is Jesus. And my prayer for you this Christmas is to know him as the wonderful counselor, the one who can guide you when your moments seem darkness, when hope seems lost, when confusion and frustration is rampant to something so much better than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are uh, the God who invites us to know you. The God who is not absent from our lives, even though sometimes it seems like you are so far off. I know the truth is that you are ever-present with us, and sometimes it's hard to imagine that. But that is what Christmas reminds us. Reminds us that you are Emmanuel, the God who came near. The God who chose to be with us, to give us hope, to redeem us, to make us new. God, sometimes we need that reminder, and I pray that this Christmas season we find it. That by your Holy Spirit we can know to be true the hope that is offered in Jesus. And I pray that that we come to know you, Jesus, as the baby who was born, to enter into the world, the God who is with us, 
And as the Messiah who took on the sins of the world on the cross and died for our forgiveness, for our atonement, to make things right, but also the one who is a wonderful counselor, who has guidance and direction for our lives. I pray we come to know you that way and we choose to listen, trust you, and follow. And that as we do that, we see the goodness you have for us in our days. As Paul wrote, that we are your masterpieces, prepared for good works long ago. Help us to know that truth, to embrace it, and that even in moments of sorrow or suffering, persevere, because we know your hope will not put us to shame. I pray we come to know that today and every day. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.